Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we come to You and we are grateful. We're grateful that in spite of the overwhelming tide that seems to go against Your church, that You have built Your church, You will build Your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And God, in that, there is great confidence that we have, not because of us, not because of our faith, but because of You and Your Word and what we have faith in. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we tackle this passage before us, that it will be, as it should be, a grave warning, but also a wonderful, delightful comfort to those who have placed their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And so God, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would move in this place, that it would convict hearts, that it would encourage hearts, and that it would comfort Your people. And we pray that Your Word would do its work. For the praise of Your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Second Peter. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one from the pew or chair nearby. And you can turn in there to Second Peter chapter 2. And that's on page 1018. That's right between 117 and 119 for those of you struggling in math. So 118. We'll be reading from verse 3, the second part of that, through verse 10. It says there, written by Peter, their condemnation, speaking of these false teachers that we've been hearing about over the last week or two, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If, by turning the cities of God at Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, if, 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 then... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This morning, if you're a guest with us today, you will get to walk through the next passage in the study we're going through in Second Peter. And sometimes one of the beauties of going verse by verse through Scripture is that you come to passages that you would choose not to preach if you could, but it's there. And the Word of God, all the Word of God is profitable, right? That the man and woman of God might be thoroughly furnished for every good work. So that tells me that this Word of God needs to be taught. 
It's part of what we need to be thoroughly furnished as the people of God to do the work of God that he's prepared for us. And so this morning, even though I, one who is tends to be more of an encourager, I don't like confrontation, I don't like to be negative, there's negative stuff in front of us. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to preach it. We're going to preach it because it is good. It is good for our, our hearts. It's good for our souls. And there is great comfort in this passage as well. There's grave warnings and great comfort provided in these verses. Granted, they're probably not going to be verses that you're going to find in a Hallmark card or a Dayspring card in your local CVS or Walgreens. You're going to, not going to open up a card and find these verses about the destruction of the angels and Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just not going to be there. You're not going to find it. But it's more of like what loving parents would do if they saw their children being tempted, saw their children in danger. Now, it's probably, not probably, it's definitely better warnings than some maybe your parents gave you, right? You may have gotten warnings from your parents like, if you touch a toad, you'll get warts, right? That's not true, by the way. Those kids, that's not true. I don't care what your parents have told you. You don't get warts from toads, all right? Also, another one. This was one my parents firmly believed in. Don't eat steak with pink on the inside. You'll get sick. I hated steak. Am I right? My wife knows I did not like steak. I thought it was the worst meat ever because I'd only known it as shoe leather, right? (laughs) Sorry, Mom. It's a fact. My... I just got tired jaws from trying to eat it. And the one time, the one time that there was pink in the center, my whole family mocked it and mooed all the way through. Like every time they'd cut it, they'd moo. Like it was still living, right? Maybe, maybe your parents told you this one. My dad was a math teacher, alright? So you, you have to learn to do math in your head because you're not gonna always have a calculator on you when you grow up. <laughs> Right there on the home screen, there's the calculator. Those warnings, those warnings were not always true. Because they didn't have a good case. They didn't have a good evidence for that. But what we have before us today is a loving apostle. One who cared as a father for the church in those early days. And he had some warnings and he had some encouragement. But these warnings came with case evidence. Three examples that he gives us. These are important because while we may find them too heavy or too judgy to preach, the fact of the matter is that the message of of warning in these passages is for those who are tempted to follow false teachers. And as Chris pointed out last week, we, you, me, we are the ones who are tempted to follow false teachers, right? There's not one of us who is exempt from the temptation to be drawn away and enticed by, by these kinds of false teachers. You see, the problem is, is that we often feel this tsunami that comes against the church, that comes against even you in your workplace, through your friends, through professors and teachers, maybe even family members. 
that pressure you to say, you can't really believe that. That there's really like a life after death. That there's really a coming judgment. That there's really true men and women. That there's really God, God cares what you do in your bedroom. That God really cares about that stuff. Yes. Yes. I believe that. And the fact of the matter is, is that even within the church, and this is where the danger lies, we find that there are those who are part of that tsunami of untruth and immorality and sensuality that are leading people to be pressured out of fear and out of just sheer impressionability to go and follow. And maybe you felt that in the culture around us in our time. Maybe you felt the change in our time. Here are some that we read about today that lived in times like we live. And Paul makes a case that we have a God. That we have a God who can both deal with the ungodly, deal with the unrighteous, and He can, in the midst of all of that, that for those who stand firm in faith, that He can rescue out of the middle of that wave. And that is the great comfort that we find. And you see, Paul argues here in this, this instance from the greater to the lesser. He's going to begin in the throne room of heaven. He's going to move to the pre-flood world, the ancient world, the whole world. And then he's going to move down into Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he's going to, he's, by implication, then he's dealing with these false teachers that lived at the time of the writing of this epistle. So from the greater to the lesser, and we'll talk about what that means here in a bit, but it begins here in the very throne room of God. First exhibit that he shares is that God demonstrated impartial and powerful judgment of the rebel angels in heaven. He says in verse 4, For if, or better, I think the better word there for us to understand it, it's not if in the way that we think about it, we think of if as, well, if it happened, right? That it, Think of it more in your logic class or in your algebra classes or college algebra, whatever you took, of the if-then statement, right? Since this is true, then this must also be true. If A, then B, right? And in this case, if, if, if A and B and C, then most definitely D. Okay, he's building a case here. So exhibit one is God demonstrated impartial and powerful judgment of the rebel angels in heaven. God did not spare, verse four says, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. I'm going to pause there and work through this. Um, this is a very interesting passage, one that many of you would like, oh, we can't wait to dig into this one. We want to know everything about the rebel angels in heaven. Here's the bad news for you. We don't know a whole lot about this. And we're not really big into speculation. Okay? We'll talk a little bit about what some, the cases that are made, but we're not going to go deep into this. What we do know from Scripture, both here and in Jude 6, where it says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What we know is some angels sinned. They 
What we also know is that those angels stepped outside of what their assigned duties were, their position of authority. Isaiah talks about, about Lucifer, right? The, the, the one who, who said, I, I, I. I li- he lifted himself up, and what happened to him? He was cast out of heaven. And what most believe, many believe, I should say, is that this is, along with Satan, that part of that rebellion in heaven. Others believe that it could deal with the verse in Genesis 6-2, where it talks about the sons of God married and procreated, procreated with the daughters of men, going outside of God's design for angels, resort, resulting in God's judgment. I personally feel that is a very weak case. Now, I know I'm offending some of you that maybe feel very strongly that that is in fact what that references. I, there's, a, there's a whole lot that goes behind that. But let me say this. I think, first of all, that Jesus explains later that in the resurrection, in Matthew 22:30, people will be like the angels in heaven and will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So I don't, I don't buy that idea of them being able to procreate. Some will say, well, that's angels in heaven. Once they were cast out of heaven, now they can. Okay, that's, I understand that argument. That's the argument. And I try to be fair, and it just that's one way of looking at it. I tend to think this is referencing those angels in the very throne room, room of heaven, and I think it's why that it's brought up first, right? It's in the realm of heaven. It's great arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying even angels around the very throne room of God, His creation, when they rebelled, what did He do? He judged them. And what did He do? He cast them out of heaven and put them in chains of gloomy darkness. What do we find about Satan and the fallen angels? We find that they are very, they are limited. Yes, they have, they have some reign, but they are limited just like Satan in Job who comes and asks for permission to go after Job, right? They are limited in their scope. They'll not go an inch, not a micrometer further than what the, the sovereign Lord will allow. And so they, are, they remain there, held until one day. They will be cast in the eternal lake of fire forever, right? And we will be free from that torment. Earth will be free. So that's, in general, one of those two, we're pretty confident, is what is referenced here. We know this. The angels rebelled and God dealt with them. What does that tell us about God? What is Peter's point in bringing that up? Well, if God would not spare even glorious, mighty angels in heaven... In the, when they sinfully, they sinned against God. Why would he spare arrogant, destructive, false teachers who deny the authority and word of God and the apostles? That's the case he's making. In other words, these guys that are trying to infiltrate the church and denying the authority of God, denying the judgment, the coming judgment, they don't stand a chance. If the angels didn't stand a chance, these guys don't stand a chance either. So after beginning with the judgment of the angels in heaven itself, Peter moves on to the next example. Exhibit two is God destroyed the corrupt and violent ancient world while preserving eight souls. So he moves on from heaven. Now we're on earth, but we're thinking of the whole earth. 
says in verse 5, He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And we read about Noah, and we read about this account of the flood back in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8. And in verse 6, or in chapter 6, verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Verse 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with, the, with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And now Noah. Noah was a man of faith. He took God at his word. And what did he do? He set to work. Set to work building an ark. By faith, in the instructions God gave him, right? Because that was a lot of faith. If there's a flood coming, it's going to destroy the whole earth. He better have a whole lot of faith in the instructions he's getting on building this ark that he's never seen for a flood. He had no idea what it was going to be like. That's a whole lot of faith. And Noah built that, over decades built that ark for a day, that an event that no man could conceive. Day after day, while Noah did this hard work, what did the people around them do? Well, we find in Luke 17 that they continued in their headlong path towards destruction. It says in Luke 17, 26 and 27, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. They ignored the message. They ignored the warnings of this herald of righteousness. How is he a herald of righteousness? I don't know whether Noah preached. I don't know that he had to do a lot of preaching. I, I think he just shared. Why are you building that ark, Noah? I don't think he got snarky. I don't think he was silly about it. I think he very clearly could have simply said, God said that this, he's going to destroy this world because of the sin in it. And the only way to escape is to come in. Come into the safety of the ark. And yet we know that it was only Noah... Only Noah, his wife, his boys, and their daughters that were rescued. They came by faith, they came into the ark, while the others ignored the message of this man who labored for decades. And in the end, God destroyed a whole earth. Think about that. Sometimes we think of the earth being destroyed. Think of the people, think of the souls. This is no small thing. God would not take this lightly. The creator of life will not lightly destroy life. Life is precious. And you say, well, yeah, but there probably weren't that many people in that day. Based on most estimates of the time frame between what what we believe of creation and the time of the flood and the generations listed in Scripture, there were likely hundreds of millions, if not billions, of people then. Some estimate up to four billion people. It's about half what we have now. But that's a whole lot of people. You drive around Indianapolis during rush hour. You see a lot of people. But... 
It's not millions. It's a lot of people. And if God would not spare billions of people then, then why would he withhold judgment on a few false teachers? Why? They're infiltrating his church. They're leading his people astray, or trying to. And Peter is desperate to warn the people of God that in the end, they will be judged. They will have their day. You see, but the good news is this. In the midst of this, in this cataclysmic flood, a flood that not only came from above, but from below, right? We read in Genesis that disrupted the earth so much that it is no longer the same layout as we would, have, as we would imagine it back then. That it was destroyed as they knew it. God took eight and prepared and plucked them out and said, you're mine. Those few he preserved. He saved them. He prepared a way by faith they entered in and they were saved. Sound familiar? If you're not picking up what I'm putting down, there is a a day coming in the near future that we call Easter. It follows Good Friday for those of you that don't follow that calendar. And what happened on Good Friday? Christ died. Preparing a way. For us, and then he rose again. He delivered. He, he it was his, he he came through death himself, and he says, "Those who by faith trust in me will be brought through as well." You can by faith trust in Christ, and you will be brought through, if you will, the waters of death. And we saw an example of baptisms this morning. We'll be delivered from that death through Christ, and He invites you to come in by faith. So he will not only destroy the wicked, but he'll also rescue the righteous. And you're like, yeah, we could read that in the text. I know. I know. We're getting there. But we got one more exhibit, right? We got one more. Paul's not done. So if God would destroy an entire populated world of people by pl- while plucking his people out of the midst of that destruction, a destruction like the world has never seen, then arrogant false teachers in the midst of his people will certainly stand no chance. And God's people can rest assured and confident in their faith. So we know God's not restricted by partiality, not by sheer numbers of people. So let's move on to exhibit number three. God decisively eradicated Sodom and Gomorrah while mercifully rescuing righteous Lot. Hold that thought. Righteous Lot? Are you kidding me? We'll get back to that one. Peter, knowing that his readers were familiar with the, the, the account, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah and the, their destruction, he just simply wrote. By turning, he just said what happened, not why, and all the background. By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And, by the way, that case is made by prophet after prophet and by Jesus Christ himself that Sodom and Gomorrah were sort of the poster child for the reality of coming judgment. It says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, 
Which, by the way, isn't it interesting that it's a similar word to what is used in verse 2 when he talks about the false teachers and their sensuality. It's a different Greek word. It's similar in how it's translated. We'll get back to that one. The sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So in this biblical account, of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to sort of go over the story in case you're not familiar with it. In this biblical account of Sodom and Gomorrah, God saw their wickedness. And it's, re- it's recorded in Genesis 18 that he went to Abraham. Abraham was Lot's uncle and had, and lived in a land very nearby and said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I must destroy the cities. And Abraham said, well, Lord, if there were 50 souls. And then he went down and finally he's like, oh, if there's 10 people that live there, wouldn't you spare the city? And in the end, there weren't. But there was righteous Lot and his family. And God sent two angels into the city. And those two angels who went into the city towards evening were met by Lot and Lot came to them and said, guys, you don't understand. You, you really, really need to come in to our house for the night. Come to my house and you can leave tomorrow, whatever, but do not sleep here in the town park. It will not end well. And he convinced them to do so. And you likely know what happened. And, and this is where often the Bible is not exactly clean and pretty as we might like it to be as we tell these stories to our young people. But it's real. It's what actually happened. And so he, he brings them in and the Bible then reveals the sin that was in the Sodomites' heart. What did they do? Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Wow. The angels proceeded then to blind those men. To blind the men surrounding the house. And they urged Lot and his family, took hold of him, to flee the city for the wrath of God was certainly to come. Lot and his family fled the city. They had been told not to look back or they'd be turned to Saul. His wife looked back. We don't know her heart. We don't know the reason why. We'll not try to, again, speculate on that. But we know only Lot and his two daughters escaped. Genesis 19, 24 and 25 records this. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground and left it as a barren wasteland. Jude puts it this way in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah were consumed with indulging themselves in whatever they desired, no matter how violated God's law or God's design, and God consumed. God consumed Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a significant, this, this example of Sodom and Gomorrah is significant to Peter's point, for its false teachers defied God's authority. 
indulging themselves and leading others to normalize sexual sin. Sodom and Gomorrah defied God's order and design, certainly through rampant adultery, certainly, but specifically through the sin of homosexuality. Some false teachers in our day, in an attempt to normalize perversion and homosexuality, they appeal to what God says to Israel in Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. And you say, this isn't brought out a lot in the text. No, but it's something that our world is raining on us. And we need to address it because our young people are being faced with this uh, stuff. If you go Google it, this is, this is going to come right up to you. And they use this particular passage as an excuse to say, well, it really wasn't homosexuality isn't the problem back there. It's really the sin of being inhospitable. Oh, they were inhospitable. In what way? In an outrageous way is what Peter said. An outrageous sin. That's the this sensuality that he expressed. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. And let me tell you, every word of Ezekiel 16 is absolutely true. It's true. But if we take it only, what do we do with the rest of the scriptures like we just read in Jude? What do we do with what Peter said about the outrageous acts? Is inhospitality that outrageous of an act? It's sinful. It's wrong. But is it, is it in the category, as he described, as Peter talks about, when he talks about this greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That word sensual conduct is better translated strong, in a stronger way, and that is their outrageous conduct. He's already addressed in this sexual immorality in another word, but this is a whole new word. So what's this? Jude calls it sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Where else do we see that? We see that in Romans 1, right? When as the progression of sin goes, then it moves towards a greater perversion of God's design. Now, time out. One thing we hear a lot is all sin is sin. And you're absolutely right. There's not one sin that is, that is, that is better than another. You're safer from, from judgment from another. They're all sin. Every sin. The wages of it? Death. And the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But there are some sins that are more outrageous in the way in which they pervert God's design. Does God judge adulterers? 100%. Absolutely. It is every bit as sinful to be an adulterer as it is to be a homosexual. And to act out homosexual. Doesn't, we're not talking about temptation here. We're tempted in many ways. Right? We have different desires that some of us are attracted to than others. But it's when we are, it's not when we are tempted that we sin. It's when we're drawn away and enticed by our own desires. And we let those desires dictate what sin we will do. That's the sin. 
So if you're struggling today, welcome to a church of strugglers who struggles with all, we struggle with all kinds of sin in this room. You're welcome here as a fellow struggler in this difficult journey of life. And we want to appeal to you, whether your struggle is in this area of, of same-sex attraction or whether it's you're tempted towards pornography or tempted towards greed. or te- Friend, come and find help. And find hope in Christ. And live within the beautiful bounds of His glorious design for life. You see, Sodom and Gomorrah while they would have justified, like many do today, their sin, like we do our sin, because we want it, because it's pleasurable, because it's enjoyable, because it's what we feel, it's what we want. And God certainly wouldn't have created us this way if He didn't want us to have it. No, God wants to rescue from what you were born as, a sinner, right? And He calls you to, by faith, come to Him and to find life. And you know what? He gave us a beautiful example right here in front of us. Righteous, righteous Lot. The same Lot that chose his land towards Sodom in the beginning. It looked good. It looked like a really successful place to go have a sheep farm. He went down to Sodom. Well, where do we find him when the angels come? We find him in Sodom. In the very town where all this junk is going on. That doesn't sound so righteous. We find the same lot, who though he brought these men in to protect him, what did he do with his daughters? Oh my word. He offered his daughters to the men outside his door instead of the men, the guests. Righteous lot? Are you, are you kidding me? How could Lot be righteous if he would commit such heinous sins as this? Well, he's a sinner, no doubt. We'll have a, we, we, there's no one that can deny that about Lot. So how could he be righteous? First of all, we must understand that righteousness is not the absence of sin, not the absence of failure, but it is a result of faith in God, which Lot clearly had. He demonstrated, first of all, a a faith in God by providing hospitality to the angelic guest, of recognizing and hating. And this is the case that Peter makes, that, that he hated this sin and immorality that was going on around him. What happened? He was tormented in his soul. It, it tore him up. Some of you, most of you probably feel that way in the stuff in the world that's going on around you. You feel tormented inside like, this can't be happening. I think every other phone call I have back home to my parents is is just that. Of like, we can't believe where the world's gone the last 10 years. Last 20 years. And tormented in their souls over it. And Lot agreed with God. By faith, he agreed with what God's design was. And by faith, he was righteous. But don't take my word for it. Remember what? Abraham bartered with God. God, if there's 50 righteous, oh, if there's 10 righteous. And God said, try again. We got maybe one. We got a lot. Lot and his family. 
And so by implication, God said, Lot is my righteous man. And so if you want to question whether Lot was righteous, take it up with Peter and take it up with God. Because they're the, he's the one who declared Lot righteous. And how are we righteous? By faith. It was the same in the Old Testament as it is today. Go to Romans 5 and you'll read a full accounting of how that we are justified by faith. Abraham, justified by faith, right? Uh, was Abraham a really swell guy? Well, remember a couple times when he offered his wife to a couple of different uh, a king and a pharaoh? Yeah, that wasn't so upright and righteous, was it? Yet, Abraham was declared righteous by God because he, by faith, believed God. Today, the same is true. We are saved as we, by faith, trust in God. So while Lot was grieved by the flood of sin that surrounded him, he was rescued from the midst of that horrible event. An event so horrible that it's used throughout scriptures as the example. The example. And Peter even says here, an example for us to know that there will be an eternal judgment. So a whole region was wiped out with only three lives preserved. God brought fiery extinction on Sodom and Gomorrah, yet rescued Lot and his girls, even though it required sending two angels to pull them out. See, Peter had a point, and his point comes down to a very simple point, a point that he makes very clearly himself, and we want to read again and then ask a couple of questions. So what's his point? Verse 9 and 10. If, and again, think of it this way, if God wouldn't spare the angels in, in the heaven above, if God wouldn't spare the whole world, if God wouldn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but out of that he would rescue Noah and his family, and he would rescue Lot, then the Lord knows how to res- rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising the authority. We're going to start with the second half of that first, because that's who, primarily, that he's addressing here. Those false prophets who were denying that there was going to be a coming judgment, we'll come to that later in chapter 3, and they were leading people to believe that they could live like they want, right? Hey, you got Jesus, live like you want, right? As long as you believe in Jesus, you're going to be fine. And they were leading them into sensuality. And says, God knows how to deal with them. That's not yours to deal with. It wasn't, Sodom and Gomorrah weren't lots to deal with. The world in Noah's day weren't his to deal with. He was to build an ark, right? He was a herald for righteousness, but the world around, he wasn't going to save anyway. Could he, did, he, did that keep him from proclaiming truth? No, he was a herald for righteousness. Did it keep Lot from, from reaching out and drawing, is saying, guys, don't do this to these people. No, righteous Lot drew him in. They did act. They weren't, they weren't silent. But at the same time, they didn't have to bear the weight of this entire world because God's able to deal with that issue. So if God could do this, then certainly God will decisively judge with those who despise his authority. 
And again, as we talked about at the beginning, this is not that sermon that, that at this point in the sermon that you walk over, if we stopped right now, you go, oh, this is a feel-good sermon. Glad we came today. We feel so built up and encouraged to walk out and face the world. Hey, it should help you, though, to know the world is not yours to address all the issues and, and ills. Your job is to go and to be a light By faith, walk with Christ and be a light for Christ wherever you go in this dark world. He will deal with these. He'll take care of this. If God didn't give a pass to the angels into the world in Noah's day and to Sodom and Gomorrah, then He surely will not give a pass to those who pervert His word and deceive His people. Friends, that's happening all around us. If you go to a bookstore and you pick up any number of Christian books, they are filled with pure, hot garbage. They may have a beautiful person on the back who have a wonderful following on, in a church or social media, but friend, don't accept that as, or, or even some well-known speaker who writes their name on the back of it to say, oh, this, is, this was a great book. Don't take that as the answer as to whether that's good teaching or not. Take it up. Read, but compare to Scripture. Listen to other wise counselors and to, to, to take heed. Because I tell you what, our churches are full of people who want to say, hey, just come follow me. Come follow me and line my pockets. Come follow me and live like you want. Come follow me. And, and what is the outcome? People that are living sensual lives, ungodly lives, while calling themselves by taking the name of Jesus. So alongside this trifold warning to the ungodly, there is a comforting reality for those who reverence God, who who live under His authority. And by faith, trust in Him for salvation, He can and will rescue and preserve them. God will graciously rescue His people. Psalm 4.3 says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Friend, no matter the trials, Peter says, God is able to rescue you. No matter from how difficult your trials are, from the, especially considering the difficulties in the world around us, the immorality and sin around you, nor how close it is, God is able to rescue His people. God is able to rescue His people. And so there's two questions I want to leave you with. And quickly, I want to ask you this. First of all, whom will I fear? Whom will I fear? Both Noah and Lot lived in an overwhelming culture. They could have been just sucked right in, but they weren't. And they they did not give in. Will we feel pressure and cave to those pressures of others who claim the name of Jesus to accept their teachings, their interpretations? Or will we live like Peter admonishes us to live under the authority of Scripture? And you may feel these pressures from the media, from friends, from classmates, teachers. You may feel it from, uh, from your own family members to accept what is unacceptable to God. Friend, don't use your relationships as a justification for accepting something that God calls sin. 
stand firm on the authority of God's word. There's only one who should be feared. As Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is Jesus speaking to those who were, those who were following him and saying, you want to fear something, fear God. Fear the one who not only has ability to kill you, but to cast you into hell. That's a harsh thing, Jesus. But just a minute. What did Jesus do? He made it so that you not, if you do fear God, that you can know the ultimate love of God. He took that death. He took your punishment. He was killed on your behalf that you can have life and that you don't have to live in that kind of fear. You can reverence Him all the days of your life, but you can delight in Him because He is the one who loved you to the point of death and made a way for you to be rescued. He prepared a way. And if God would not spare His own Son, how will He not also give you all things? And He has prepared for you everything you need through His very precious promises that Peter talks about in verse chapter 1, verse 3. So the second question comes is this, Whom will I follow? Whom will I fear? And whom will I follow? Jesus said in Luke 21, and He said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in My name, saying, I am He, and the time is at hand. Don't go after them. Many will claim to be Christians. They may be the nicest people, greatest personalities, winsome. They may attract a following, even hold and use a Bible. But if their message is not the Bible's message, do not follow them. No matter their politics, their denomination, how popular they may be, their history, and your relationship with them, how many books, CDs, and podcasts you've read of theirs, run, run, run to the comfort and the safety and the security of the Word of God. Run to Him. And in that, you will find the way to be rescued. You will find the way that God has prepared for you to be preserved amidst the tidal wave, the tsunami that has hit our earth and had hit it at the curse and continued from that day forward to sweep through our world. It's even swept through our own hearts. And in that you will find that if you come to Christ in repentance and faith, that you will be cleansed. And in being cleansed, you will be then, as the Bible describes it, in Christ. He is the ark, if you will, that will carry you through fully to salvation. And you can have confidence, you can have comfort, and you can rest in that. And this morning, that's our call. Yes, judgment is coming. But friend, there is a joyous comfort and hope that has been provided. Come in. Come into the ark. As Lot would would have said, come with me, get out. Get out of town. And come to the Savior. And find comfort. Find preservation. Find rescue and salvation. Let's pray. Gracious Father, this was a unique text to preach. 
I pray that you would take your word and in spite of any difficulty that we have in processing it, that we would take to your word and run to it and trust it and live in submission to it and find rest and comfort and rescue. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.